but if we believe in this dohat concept and if it's um if it's really true i think it's um it's um um it's great to to know that we actually we could prevent um diseases many diseases by only although it's a big job but 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 by only uh, paying more attention to the vulnerable individuals in this um in this case the ones who need additional nutritional requirement in particular pregnant and lactating mothers infant and young children and um yeah i mean just to quote um david barker um he once said that how do we build stronger people it's by improving the early nutrition of babies the next generation doesn't have to suffer from heart disease osteoporosis and breast cancer if we had the will to prevent them so today we have both the knowledge and the opportunity to prevent to end uh, deaths because of the preventable diseases by greatly improving the maternal and infant health and well-being and um i want to link this to women empowerment if you if you think that's yeah so i think i think in this case again um infant and young children they're very important but don't forget about the womb because womb is um, a very cru- crucial living place when the um, um fetus grows um so women should be empowered and educated because um women with greater access to education and healthcare they're more likely to have fewer children and then they have more control over health resources and less likely to suffer um from diseases and also from um that domestic violence consequently their children their offspring they're more um likely to likely to survive to be um healthcare and better child care at home better healthcare in general when they need it and in the wider perspective healthy women are more able to actively participate in society so as an indonesian woman i feel very privileged to be here to studying in such a developed country um in the uk because i know i understand that um a lot of indonesian females um still in especially in some remote areas they got married they had children in such a very young age even 13 years old and they're not educated and um they don't feel that they they're worthy enough to um speak out for example so i have to i i want to um speak more i mean share this message that actually um women in any country in all over the world they should have they should they should get more and more attention and we have to work together to um to to give them enough education so they can live well because um healthy women with a, yeah um basically with women with good health and well-being they will also have um healthier children that is Olga talking about the developmental origins of health and disease concept and how it may inform our policies around the resources and attention we give to women and young children uh, because of the effect that that can have on the next generation with regards to chronic disease 
I thought that was a really important message, so I just wanted to put that at the beginning of this episode. You might go back and listen to it again once you've gone through the whole episode and heard us talk a little bit more about some of the other ideas around the developmental origins of health and disease idea, and then uh, that message might just resonate a little bit more. Olga is currently completing her PhD. Before that, she practiced as a medical doctor in Indonesia. In this episode, we dive into the developmental origins of a health and disease hypothesis, which we often just shorten to DOHAD. Basically, it's the idea that our experiences during early development, so in pregnancy, uh, in uterus, and uh, in the first few years of life, that those experiences predispose us for health or towards chronic disease later in life. Olga spends some time explaining the concept and some of its supporting theories. She gets into theories like thrifty phenotype, uh, and match and mismatch, and a few others. She then talks a little bit about the nutritional relationships to the DOHAD theory, as well as some other environmental factors. The other factors she breaks down into maternal status, fetal factors, dietary factors, and lifestyle factors. The one we get into most is um, gestational diabetes, uh, that's under the maternal status category. After that, we go a little bit into delivery methods and breastfeeding. Specifically in breastfeeding, we talk about some of the modifiable and non-modifiable components of breast milk. There are moments in the podcast when our Skype connection cuts out a little bit. You probably heard that in the introduction. It doesn't usually interrupt our conversation. Um, Overall, this is a a great episode. I had a lot of fun recording and learning uh, from Olga. I hope you enjoy it just as much as I did. And here here it is. Um, All right. So I'm here with Olga. Uh, Welcome to the podcast. We're going to talk about the developmental origins of health and disease hypothesis, among other things. Uh, we met at a conference a while ago now in Spain that was on nutrition and growth. And I was listening yeah. to one of Olga's conversation or one of her presentations, and I thought it was really good. And approached her and thought I would try to get her on the podcast. So I think the first thing we should do, though, Olga, is just have you introduce yourself and your background. Okay. Um, yeah. First of all, thank you, Ryan, for giving me the opportunity to share something from my work thank you for being really patient with me um, we met in the conference like a thousand years ago <laughs> so yeah my name is olga it's not um, um, a common name from my um, home country indonesia um, it's russian name because my dad loves russian names uh, beautiful beautiful place um, far away maybe from um, canada and I graduated as medical doctor there and then spent uh, four years of medical practice serving in the primary care uh, while also being involved in some clinical studies. So I came to the UK in April 2015, four and a half years now, um, first to do master's. Um, I came to the UK to have um, experience in doing medical research and then I did a um, short-term internship and now I I'm doing a PhD program in departments of pediatrics. Um, so yeah, I've developed this special feeling in pediatrics since the beginning of medical school, because I think 
babies, even though they sick, they don't smell. Um, <laughs> and I'm now at the end of my third year of my PhD. It's about studying the determinant antenatal and occasional factors on infancy growth, weight gain and body composition, and specifically on um, small infants and also infants born from mothers with diabetes. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Um, so one of the things we should do first, I think, is just go through some definitions just because at least when I try to read articles in this space, there's a lot of different terms like developmental origin of a health disease, Barker theory, fetal origins, thrifty phenotype, um, etc. So maybe you can just go through and help me and the listeners, I guess, understand what some of those terms are. I think that'd be a great place to start. Oh, okay. Um, so first... Um, talking about the heart stands for developmental origins of health and diseases, as you've uh, mentioned before. It's basically a um, hypothesis that our adulthood health and our metabolic disease risk are actually determined long time ago, long time ago since early life. This theory was first suggested by David Barker. Um, physician from a uh, British physician, um, very famous, and uh, historically, he and his friend, a statistician, they discovered that the areas with the highest death rates from heart disease, those areas also had the highest rates of infant mortality 50 years earlier. So basically, from there, he proposed that chronic diseases may have origins in the womb. So that's about Dohat and about early life. It refers to the first 1,000 days of life. Um, consists of conception and conception of conception or pregnancy, which is nine months, equals to 70 days. And then infancy, um, two years of infancy. So 365 times two equals 730 days. So... We believe that first um, thousand days we always refer as critical period, um, critical um, window of opportunity, um, critical window of programming. So important period uh, because two main reasons at least. First, uh, first, firstly, during this time there is a massive development of organs in both structure and function. And secondly, because of that um, massive development, the individual is extremely susceptible to environmental changes around them, especially in nutrition. Um, so if there's any insult happens during this period, it could be lethal, so leads to them, uh, the individual could die. Or if the individual survives, it could lead to severe metabolic complications until later in life. Anything else that you want me to explain? Um, no, that's good. So uh, some of the... Did you want to go into any of the supporting theories, like thrifty phenotype okay. or um, match and mismatch? I know you, we talked a little bit about those before. So again, uh, back then, the hut was just um, a concept, a crazy concept. But now, 
is already complemented by a lot more develop a, a lot more develop uh, theories um, and replicating studies from all over the world showing robust evidence. And some theories have been proposed to support Dohat concept. Um, first one we call it the phenotype, also proposed by Barker and his um, friend uh, Hales, a biochemist from Cambridge. Um, so they propose that uh, poor nutrition, essentially, during pregnancy, will cause permanent metabolic changes because in order to allow a fetal survival during adversity. So because of the poor nutrition condition, the body should prioritize the important organ, in this case brain, for example, and then create some metabolic changes which are permanent and sacrifice other organs, like for example the reduced beta cells in your pancreas, leading to higher risk of type 2 diabetes in the future. So that's the phenotype because you have to prioritize the most important organs. And then it's, um, I think it's um, completed by um, match and mismatch theory by Glukman and Hansen. So they propose that fetus actually, they have, a fetus has some dialogue with its mother about nutrient availability during pregnancy. And if the, if the nutrition is not sufficient, it will be translated as a signal of poor environment later, postnatally. Uh, this um, signal will then stimulate, stimulate again metabolic changes in order to promote survival. However, if postnatal uh, condition turns out to be a lot more supportive, um, sometimes leading to energy excess, the plenty of nutrition uh, provision could lead into diseases. And then um, another theory that I'd like to explain um, is uh, 30 genotypes. So some genetic variations can be advantageous in times of lack, but then become detrimental in times of plenty. For example, these are the same genes that work in maximi maximize, maximizing your fat storage during insufficient food supply. These same, these same genes will um, make you more uh, predisposed to adverse metabolic features when you're exposed to uh, plant nutrition, overnutrition condition. And then um, there's also fetal insulin theory by Hattersley um, saying that there's a common polymorphism in insulin secretion genes which cause intrauterine growth restriction leading to small birth weight babies and also this, uh, this, this common polymorphism happened in the abnormal glucose tolerance. Um, yeah, and then lastly about epigenetics, there are some evidence that fetal genes, they're able to interact with the environment relating to um, pregnancy and uh, maternal factors, resulting in permanent epigenetic changes. For example, offsprings of mothers who suffered from Dutch hunger winter in 1944-45, they have lower DNA methylation of insulin growth factor 2 gene. Hmm. 
All right, so I think I might just try to summarize some of that just to see if I understand it fully. Um, maybe trying to put some of them together, but essentially the environment that a baby is exposed to in the uterus yep. can predispose them to chronic disease later in life. So thrifty was um, in under conditions where there's not a lot of nutrition available, they are going to prioritize specific organs. Is that yeah. essentially right? Yeah. yeah. And then match yeah. and mismatch was that the environment in utero determines the programming of the fetus for the environment outside of the uterus. Yeah. Is that if kind of... Mismatch. If there's a mismatch, then it's a problem. Yeah, because back then, firstly, we always think that um, small birth with babies, they're at risk. Hmm. But then, not all of them, more specifically to those small, but then after birth, they perform rapid catch-up, especially in weight gain. They are at more... Uh, they're at them higher risk compared to the small babies who grow stable, who grow steadily. But then it's conflicting because you always expect the small babies to catch up in mm -hmm. terms of two, so they can um, reach the maximal height uh, target mm -hmm. and also the maximal um, brain capacity, maximal head circumference. Um, but if it's too rapid, if it's too um, catching up, too steep, they will have um, higher risk to develop insulin um, resistance in the future. So mm -hmm. this is very interesting to study. Like if we could, if we could find um, a safer cutoff that we can maximize the individual's um, potential, but we also we don't expose them to the higher risk of disease later in life. Right. So safe cutoff in terms of growth charts, in terms of we want them to catch up, yeah. but we want them to do so in a safe way, not yeah. not rapidly, but also, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Okay. And then one of the possible mechanisms that you described was epigenetics, which if people don't know what epigenetics is, is a change in the function of DNA without changing its structure. Or exactly. some people describe it's the connection between our genes and the environment or how yeah. our genes talk to the environment. That's right? Yeah. Okay. Um, okay, perfect. <laughs> so um, we might be changing the expression, expression of certain genes due to the environment in utero, which can affect affect our risk for disease later in life yeah the, the important thing is um the fetal genes um are affected by the maternal environment right maternal factors and also environment during pregnancy right and then you mentioned the dutch famine which um was a time of nutrient scarcity and there's evidence that shows that that resulted in increased risk for disease later in life. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Excellent. Perfect. I just wanted to make sure I had it all straight in my mind. <laughs> um, perfect. Okay. And so 
going into then some of the nutritional influences. So if people are listening to this and they're thinking, well, if the maternal environment is affecting baby's risk for disease later in life, um, what are some specific nutritional influences that are playing a role? Um, so um, it actually covers both macro and micronutrients. So not only about the um, calorie, you know, over and under nutrition, but also about um, micronutrient, especially during the periconceptional period, which again, maybe I have to explain the definition, which varies, depends on the region, <laughs> varies between country to country, study to study. But generally, it's a um, periconceptional period is time preceding, including, and immediately following human conception. So um, some studies have defined it as 60 days prior to conception or two months prior to conception until 30 days or one month of gestation. But then some others expanded, expanded until five to six months before conception and, two, and 12 weeks gestation. So yeah, basically, before, during, and following um, gestation, um, and all are the most determinant factor in this period. But nutrition also plays a key role, especially micronutrient. And the accepted the, the accepted theory in this case. Um, usually is essentially at the one carbon metabolism pathway. I don't know if you've heard of it. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a universal metabolic process that um, serves to activate and transfer one carbon unit for biosynthetic processes. Maybe you, you, can, you can explain it better than me. Um, and it's mainly mediated by folate, um, folate um, cofactor. So that's why fo um, folic acid is very important. Um, before, prior to uh, conception. And now, um, many countries, not only developing countries, but also developed countries, um, have uh, problems about lack of um, vitamin B, B vitamins, because you have more than um, vitamin B, like B1, B6, B12, so B vitamins in the diet. Um, I think from micronutrient, although minerals also important, but because of it's um, increasing, it's a growing problem and it's um, affected many countries. So we have to pay attention. And more studies um, now reported that lack of B vitamins in the di in diet uh, lead to an increase in plasma homocysteine level which is um, homocysteine is um, a very strong biomarker of early development of heart diseases. And then um, minerals, in this case, ions and um, zinc, um, they're, they're also important in um, organ development during pregnancy. But then maybe I have to, again, um, refer to all micronutrients in this case because they have their own function. Um, um, for for instance, vitamin D, it's also hot a hot topic in this field, and now um, many um, practices 
in um, obstetric, obstetric obstetric practices they give a um, high dose of uh, vitamin D to the pregnant women hmm. uh, the, the background is because although you live in um, countries with high sun exposure sometimes you can also find um, um, low vitamin D levels among women and yeah and vitamin D is uh, very important for your immune system and um, immune system and organ development as well. And then, like for example, um, about Dohat, about Dohat research, um, I just want to say, to the best of my knowledge, most data are from um, high middle income countries. Um, so, if we can just broaden up our perspective and think, think again um, that uh, because it's it's more about poor nutrition, if especially if it's followed by excess nutri poor nutrition during pregnancy, especially if it's followed by excess nutrition postnatally. And the more, more suitable population to study is basically in developing countries. For example, in my home country, because there you can you can you can still find under under nourished mothers, and then the children, due to the globalization, for example, or just if they just move to urban areas, they would be exposed to the modern diet with high intakes of fat and refined carbohydrates and then they it, it could lead to diseases so what i want to um what, what i want to share the message to convey is basically if we can find if we can um fund uh, basically find more funding to those studies in more suitable population maybe we could get stronger evidence right I think that's a good reminder. It's also a good reminder for people listening and just how hard research is and just to support these different theories and a, a reminder of where research is coming from, I think is important just in terms of where we can apply or which context we can apply different studies to, especially if we don't have information from developing countries, it makes it much harder for us to apply the research we do have to those different contexts. So. Are there any other important environmental influences um, during the periconceptional period that can affect fetal development, um, yeah. including things like maybe maternal chronic disease, but we're going to start with just any other environmental influences? Yeah, of course. It's um, actually a lot, and um, I may forget to mention some factors, but um, I'm trying to recall from memory, and if I happen to remember something that I can add later on. Um, so you can divide um, based on maternal status factors, fetal factors, and dietary factors, and maternal lifestyle factors. So for example, maternal status factors start from overweight or obesity, and then systemic inflammation, so higher risk among obese mothers 
gestational weight gain, glycemic dysregulation, or gestational diabetes mellitus, increased parity. So again, firstborn versus um, the others. Um, the use of antidepressant relating to stress, anemia, hypertension, chronic diseases in um, mothers, basically, exposure to steroids, exposure to chemicals, um, mainly endocrine disruptors, um, for example, EPA in the plastic packagings, hormones, and placental factors. And then maternal lifestyle factors, including um, smoking, and then physical activity, and alcohol and drug use. From fetal factors, it's affected by sex, and then gestational age, and then singleton versus twin pregnancies or triplets, etc. And then fetal hormones, and um, maternal dietary factors including macronutrients um, and micronutrients of folic acids, vitamin D, vitamin B, vitamin A, um, magnesium, iron, zinc. Yeah. Oh, are there also paternal factors? Did you mention paternal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so in the recent years, especially, it's uh, become obvious that a paternal environment before conception and during sperm development also determine the, the health of the offspring. Um, but it's still debatable from study to study. Um, but as a, a, a temporary conclusion, I think I can say that um, it was shown that children born not only to obese mothers but also to obese fathers tend to be obese. Um, and some some studies they reported that um, mother offspring associations are stronger than father offspring of, of associations, but um, few studies also reported comparable effects from both maternal and paternal obesity. Um, that's about obesity. But um, again, the, the paternal factors been um, studied, um, especially before conception and affecting the um, um, fertility rate, um, mainly about um, smoking, alcohol, and um, other substances, um, which could lead to infertility, male infertility. But then, to those who survive, reach conception, um, fetal, and then babies, they also have some, um, some risk of developing diseases as well right i guess that would be um, a tough study to do because there'd be the conflict of also just developing in a household where maybe the habits of the parents are influencing development where if they're just around parents who are smoking or who or overeating etc that would also influence their development Yeah, yeah, but then again, um, to 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 bring up this topic, like for example, of course, obesogenic obesogenic environment is a strong predictor of someone to become obese. Right. But there are some there 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 are a study, there, there is a study comparing siblings. Mm. Uh, or was born. And mother was obese before pregnancy. 
and then second child was born when maternal BMI was normal before pregnancy. And of course, they live in the same household, same, you know, like lifestyle. Um, but then the second one, they uh, the second one comes out as the lean child, lean child compared to them, um, their sibling. It's more obese compared to the yeah. So I think that could explain. So that's why, um, if it's possible and feasible, you have funding. It's all it's it's very it's very ideal, very good to have um, sibling studies or twin studies. I think twin studies, uh, twin uh, studying the twin is um, uh, giving you stronger results because you can control for the genetic variations and then the um, um, environment factors as well. Right. So if you had twins who were raised in, one who was raised in an obesogenic environment and one who was not, then you would give you some more information. That's really interesting. Um, okay, so let's then go into a little bit more on maternal status because this is one of your areas and talk about uh, gestational diabetes and how that influences uh, fetal development. Yeah, so... Um... Maybe let's say generally about maternal overnutrition, mm-hmm. um, because maternal overnutrition is um, the most important and established factor of gestational diabetes. GDM, um, from terminology perspective, GDM def- is defined as uh, diabetes happens during pregnancy, so not before pregnancy, which could be due to type two diabetes, for example, or type one diabetes. And that means this GDM will um, will 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 stop. I mean, will um, finish the onset of the disease of this disease after birth, after delivery. Um, so, insulin resistance during pregnancy is actually a normal, natural adaptation mechanism, because a mother with in mother with fetus in the womb will have um, higher nutritional requirement and nutritional requirement intake and then it's just some um, adaptation mechanism um, the um, production of higher insulin but some cases it will lead to GDM and GDM will bring many complications to both mothers and babies both perinatal and postnatally so the infants they would usually be larger at size Although in a paper that we just published last last month in Diabetologia, our infants of mothers with diabetes, with mothers with GDM, they are um, at the same size as controls. So you can find and read our paper, but um, we still have some hypothesis to support that. It could be just Cambridge's very unique population, or it could be due to the stricter um, diagnosis criteria or the use of metformin because uh, back then we only used insulin and now we use metformin as well and metformin causes the placenta um, but yeah it's um, good to discuss so if you happen to um, read that paper published uh, August um, just last month in Diabetologia about um, Cambridge infants born of mothers with diabetes but yeah classically they would be larger at birth and uh, so Perinatally, they would be 
um, having higher risk to have um, C-section delivery and C-section delivery against um, C-section delivery again has um, higher risk um, to later disease risk. And then after that, the baby mothers with GDM, they also have a higher risk to develop hypoglycemia during um, a newborn period. So uh, yeah, so yeah, um, hours after birth. And these babies, they're then at risk of childhood obesity. And childhood obesity is a strong predictor of adulthood obesity and type 2 diabetes. That's for infants. And for mothers with GDM, they possess um, a lot higher risk to develop first one, GDM in the next pregnancies, and second, to develop type 2 diabetes in the future. Hmm. So maybe we can jump into delivery methods as well. I know one of the things at the conference that was talked about was the development of the, the microbiome and things that influence it like delivery method, C-section versus vaginal birth, um, or exposure to antibiotics or breastfeeding was actually a big topic at the conference we both attended. Um, but with delivery methods, um, what influence does that alone play? Yeah. Um, so, um, I believe that many, that, that, um, all the doctors, they will, they will try to, they will attempt to, um, do normal, um, delivery for the mothers, but to some cases they have to do C-section and we could divide C-section into two groups, the emergency C-section and elective C-section. Emergency C-section is defined when, um, you attempt to do normal delivery first usually by um, rupture the membrane and then if there are some things happened you have to do them c-section but elective c-section is the planned c-section usually because of the previous pregnancy for instance or in some cultures especially in asian it's um, it's become famous especially in the recent um, decades because they want to they want the baby to be born on a selected date a good date for example based on the culture um, so yeah in the analysis that I've run it's still unpublished data so we're hoping to um, publish this data soon the babies born via emergency section they perform quite similar to the normal delivery in terms of growth both during infancy and childhood period because we invited our babies to come to our study when they age seven to ten years old so they grow similarly in terms of um, growth so similar weight similar height and similar bmi but babies born um, via elective c-section or planned c-section um, they are heavier um, taller and more adipose as well and with a sign of um, early insulin resistance. Um, so in this children's study, we um, we do um, OGTT, oral glucose tolerance test. We ask the children to fast and then we take the blood and then take the fasting uh, blood glucose and then take again two hours after we give we give them um, the hospital meal, the yummy hospital meal. Um, yeah, so I think it's interesting because 
in most studies, we always divide the delivery into two, normal and C-section. And, this, and, and in this analysis, I was just curious to see how if I divide the groups into three and in, in the same C-section group, the emergency and elective C-section babies, they perform differently. And my hypothesis, although ideally I could give some evidence about it, but unfortunately not, but my hypothesis is due to an interplay between the microbiome and um, cortisol level because there's a Canadian study actually reporting that uh, babies born via elective C-section, they have higher cortisol level during newborn period hours after birth compared to to both normal delivery sorry babies born via elective c-section they have lower cortisol compared to the normal and emergency c-section because in both normal and um, emergency c-section um, the mothers they undergone some stress level in labor compared to the elective c-section so mm -hmm. first about the cortisol secondly about microbiome because of the um, rupturing the membrane in emergency section, um, the babies will be exposed to the maternal vaginal uh, microbiota. So quite similar to the normal delivery, uh, normal delivered babies. And um, elective C-section babies, they would be exposed to the different set of bacteria when they're born. So the hospital, um, the, 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 the bacteria um, in the hospital environment. So yeah, that's the hypothesis. Um, would 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 be, would be great, I think, if we publish this data and other groups they can um, confirm the hypothesis with um, a more uh, well-designed studies. Yeah, better designed studies. Hmm. Interesting. I had no idea about the the cortisol levels. So essentially, during birth, the, the the cortisol levels that you're talking about were in the infant, or in, in the newborn. Yeah. So the during the birth process. So if it's if it's a vaginal birth, the newborn is experiencing the stress of birth essentially, and so their cortisol goes up. And if it's an emergency C-section, they've also experienced some of the stress of birth and then yeah. underwent c-section but versus elective where there is no stress of birth it's just essentially just the c-section so that's one of the theories yeah. i think i mistakenly said the mother's gone to some stress level but i think what i mean is both of them because the babies mm -hmm. they have to go to the um lower hip as well right of the mothers right. they would be like pressed compared to the yeah, elective C-section of right. babies. So they're experiencing yeah. some of the uterine contractions and... Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, hmm, yeah. That's really interesting. And the other theory is through the microbiome. Mm-hmm. Um, which was talked about during that conference that we were both at. Um, which, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I forgot to say that um, there are some studies reporting um um yeah different set of bacteria i think if i if i've not mistaken one study from japan and one study from um occasion population reporting um 
yeah, the same um, the same set of um, um, of um, microbiota exposure to babies born normally and um, from emergency section compared to the hmm. elective born babies. Which is some of the given that microbiome theory is some practices that have come from um, that idea include things like probiotics or vaginal seeding. Um, have you, I haven't found a lot of studies on vaginal seeding. Um, I think there was one study I could find that had maybe a handful of participants, but I'm just curious if you have found anything or if you have any thoughts on that, which is for people listening is essentially taking fluid or the flora from the vaginal canal and putting it onto the skin of the infant. Yeah. Um, so, um, vaginal seeding is now, if you look, if you look, um, at the literature, I think still, um, debatable Hmm. and, um, some reporting, um, good effect, but some others, they reporting, um, side effect because, um, higher risk, um, of exposure to undesirable um, microorganism. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, here I'm not um, the expert of all, the, the expert at all in this field. But what I could say, from clinical perspective, I don't think we already have established evidence to be able to recommend vaginal seeding in mm-hmm. this case, um, because. I think from clinical perspective, you have to make sure the side effect is really low or negligible before you recommend that. And I've still found, I, I, I've, I've tried to look about the studies um, just now before this podcast, and I could see, I could, I still found some um, studies um, against it because of, yeah, I think like, for example, a study exposure to HS. Um, human human simple virus one hmm. um, to the babies because of the vaginal seeding. Um, yeah, um, again, it's a um, good opportunity. So hopefully, it will um, stimulate other studies to see right. if it's more benefit than harm. Would you recommend, uh, or have you seen any studies on probiotics? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, probiotic is a different case. I think it's um, it's good, especially for so if the for the breastfed infants, if the mothers uh, consume um, probiotic, and also for the um, babies as well after um, introduced to the mixed feeding or not mixed feeding, complementary feeding. So yeah, six months or older. Um, it's because infant gut microbiota is very important. Um, for the glucose metabolism and also for the energy uh, balance, I think, in children. Um, um, and also could be beneficial for not, not only during infancy, but also um, childhood and beyond. And so that's why um, now a lot of groups have been studying about infant gut microbiota, and still the most determinant is breast milk microbiota, if the infants are breastfed, of course. And um, 
it just gives another evidence that um, yeah, microbiota is, in, is important in any age from birth until um, later on. So yeah, probiotic is um, um, recommended now, and it's also part of the treatment if the um, baby's um, suffering from diarrhea, for example. Um, if we if we're if we're convinced that it's due to virus, we will give um, zinc and probiotic. Mm-hmm. And if it's because of bacteria, for example, antibiotics, zinc and pro- antibiotics, zinc and probiotic as well. So yeah, it's part of the practice now. I guess it'd be a good transition now to go into breastfeeding. Um, so yeah, in a nutshell, I think breastfeeding is the best feeding for infants. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why it's recommended by WHO, for example, from birth until six months. And before 2001, um, it was recommended that you could introduce food at four months. But now it's recommended again to continue breastfeeding if possible until six months at least breastfeeding only, exclusive breastfeeding. So solely breastfeeding, even not giving water to the babies because uh, breast milk uh, provides a lot of uh, benefits to both mothers and infants. And I will focus on infants um, in this case. So first of all, the breastfed infants would have a lower incidence of infections during infancy in any kind of infections and a stronger evidence from the studies um, uh, on respiratory tract infections and um, diarrhea, gastrointestinal um, tract infection. Um, It's a more influenced by the breast milk nutrients, by active factors, and also breast milk microbiota. And then second benefit, it offers more favorable growth and development for the babies. So about growth, so breastfed infants, they perform a specific growth. Which Sorry, we... you just cut out. Oh, sorry. Yes, so specific, specific growth trend, which we mm. consider as ideal or desirable growth compared to the formula fat infants. So they have a more gains in weight and adiposity in the first months of life until three months. And after that, slower trend of weight gain and adiposity gain, gain until later um, period of life, even until childhood and um, before puberty. And um, the breastfed infants, they also have better, fu- uh, better um, cognitive function and performance compared to the formula fed infants. And this uh, trend in growth, it will lead to the reduced risk of obesity in the future. And, and what about the composition of breast milk? The composition of breast milk mm-hmm. itself. I could divide into, um, like, let's say about uh, breast milk macronutrients consisting of carbohydrate, mainly lactose, and fat, mainly triglycerides and protein. Um, the amount, the amount of macronutrients in breast milk, they have uh, strong relationships with growth. 
So, of course, in some cases, the mothers cannot give breastfeeding to the babies, or maybe it's from the infant's um, indication. In that case, so that's why the formula milk companies, they're trying to copy the composition, the amount of macronutrients in breast milk to be um, translated in the formula milk. Because this macronutrient composition in breast milk, not only the type, but also the amount, um, it's very perfect for the baby's uh, requirement. So that's a macronutrient. The second one is the bioactive factors, especially human milk oligosaccharides or HMOs. So HMOs are the third largest abundant solid component of breast milk. So if we analyze breast milk and take out exclude the water component, we will get the solid component. The first uh, or the largest abundant um, component is lactose or carbohydrate. The second one is uh, fat at 98% triglycerides. And third one is HMOs, even not protein. So they're more abundant compared to protein. And HMOs, they're not... Uh, not contributing to the calorie content, and they serve as the prebiotic to the microbiota. And the most studied HMOs, 2-FL or 2-fucosilactose, um, has been um, associated with the predominant bifidobacterium predominant in breast milk microbiota. And breast milk uh, and bifidobacterium as a good bacteria will then um, transfer to the infant so that so the infant gut microbiota will also be predominantly by bifidobacterium. So that's about HMOs. And um, last one, hormones um, um, in breast milk, especially IGF-1, insulin growth factor 1, which is the most driver in infant growth, and also adipokines, especially leptin and adiponectin. So with those composition in breast milk, I um, I think, yeah, uh, we, 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 we agree that uh, it's the best feeding for infant, and we have to, we have to try to give breast milk to the babies as best as possible. In this case, it can also be translated to the policy by giving the maternal leave a sufficient, sufficiently, for example, and it really uh, varies between country to country. Like, for example, in the UK, one year, but then just last week I, I met with um, a researcher from um, Romania, I think, yeah, and they have two years. And I think in the Netherlands, could be until three years or something. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. It, it needs it needs a huge effort, not only for not only from mothers and um, environment surrounding mothers, like of, of course them husbands and the families, but in a bigger scale, the government, the policymaker, um, they have to support breastfeeding because we can we can. There's this 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 um, hope that we can build a better generation, a stronger generation, if we could have um, a better rate of um, breastfeeding, especially excessive breastfeeding until six months. 
right yeah no i agree um during this uh breastfeeding period uh if we go back to the uh, first thousand days that you mentioned the very beginning um how much of the composition including the bioactive factors and the hormones is modifiable by things like maternal status or maternal lifestyle so from modifiable uh, factors breast milk composition is affected by maternal lifestyle especially diet and um, exercise um mm-hmm especially in the fatty acid concentrations. That's what we got now from the studies. Um, I forgot to say when I explained about the breast milk, micro, breast milk nutrients, apart from the carbohydrate, fat, and protein, we also have short-chain fatty acids, or SCFAs. Um, mm-hmm. Mainly, um, the, the most important ones are butyrate and acetate. And so basically, these short-chain fatty acids they're um, very much affected by maternal um, diet, um, especially if the mothers, they consume more fish or they apply um, vegetarian or vegan diet. These um, short-chain fatty acids could be different in cultural concentrations. But apart from that, not, not much. And exercise is now one of the topic um, um, to study. Um, not necessarily affecting the growth, but mostly about, uh, sorry, not necessarily affecting the composition of breast milk, but some others, they report they have better supply in mm. terms of yeah, higher production in breast milk. But some other, some, some other mothers, they, 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 they reported that they have um, lower supply if they exercise. So I think it really depends on the amount of exercise exercise itself. But most importantly, the lactating mothers who exercise regularly, they have, um, uh, what to say, they have better impression of breastfeeding. They enjoy breastfeeding more than the mothers who don't exercise during the lactating periods. So that's about modifiable factors. The non-modifiable ones, um, in this case, I want to talk more about the HMOs. So the human milk oligosaccharides, the composition, the types of HMOs, as well as the amount of HMOs, are affected by maternal FUT2 status. FUT2 um, stands for Fucosyl Transferase 2 gene. which um, which has polymorphism. So some others, some individuals could be food to positive, and some other individuals could be food to negative. Globally speaking, most of us we are food to positive, eighty percent of us. But in some other con- in in some countries we have uh, more food to negative. Like um, a study in Africa, they have 67% food to positive and um, 100 minus 67 and a food to negative. And in food to positive individuals, in food to positive mothers, they have complete set of HMOs with higher with higher 
concentrations compared to the food to negative mothers, especially the two FL, the two focus lactose that I mentioned before, has a strong relationship with bifidobacterium predominant population in maternal milk microbiota. So in this case, it's quite a non-modifiable factor. Mothers, lactating mothers with food to negative, they will have um, less diverse HMOs and also less amount of HMOs to give to the baby, to transfer to the baby. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's too early to say that I'd recommend the, because now we have um, HMO supplementation in formula milk. Uh, I think it's too early to recommend that to the breastfed infants, for example. But the thing is, yeah, we have to we have to conduct more studies about it if we can find uh, more um, suitable intervention for those who to negative mothers lactating their babies. Mm -hmm. So, um, food to just so I can get this um, straight in my mind. So, um, food to or fucosal transferase to gene some women have a polymorphism which i don't know if we've defined yet but that's just a uh, essentially a different sequence or yeah a different sequence so every gene encodes for a protein and so they might have a slightly different protein that's maybe not functioning as well yeah okay perfect yeah. um so if they are negative it means they have one of the proteins that's not functioning as well yeah okay yeah. And in that situation, then they would have lower um, of the HMO, so lower human milk oligosaccharide, which is associated with lower bifidobacterium. So basically, less diverse. So HMOs. Less diverse, now, okay. Yeah. So um, we're still we we still have a um, lot of studies ongoing about HMOs, and like some studies, they 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 they, they find. Um, 60 species of HMOs and other studies reporting 200 species of HMOs. Mm. But our collaborators in my yeah in in, in 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 my group, the collaborators from the UC Davis, um, they're convinced about 60 species, I think. Uh, but the most important ones are um, six um, species: four neutral HMOs and two acidic HMOs. And the most um, abundant one is 2-FL, 2-focosylactose. And 2-focosylactose is in strong relationship with bifidobacterium. But the food 2 negative, negative mothers, they will have less diverse HMO species right. and also lower abundance. So less diverse and also lower concentration in individual HMOs. Got it. So, yeah, I've got um, um, a good graph um, illustrating the 2FL two, two concentration in food to positive mothers and 2FL concentrations in food to negative mothers. They're almost not detectable among the food to negative mothers compared to the food to positive mothers. But again, in maybe in compensation, there is also one um, specific HMOs, uh, one species from HMOs, higher in food-to-negative mothers. But the benefit of this um, particular species, a species is still under studies, if it's as beneficial as 2FL or not. 
Right. Okay. Makes sense. I think we've covered all the things that we wanted to get through, which was, which is impressive. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, thank you very much for sharing all of your knowledge and information. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time and for the opportunity.